Welcome to the Leading with Data podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of data, strategy, leadership, and results. The show is brought to you by Molecula, and I'm your host, Jason Dorsey. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leading with Data podcast. This is Jason Dorsey, and I'm so excited that you joined us today for this show. We have a phenomenal show, somebody who I think very, very much of, who is leading such important work right now and really brings a different perspective to data and how data intersects with trends that are happening in the world. So, of course, I'm talking about the fantastic Jonathan Greenblatt, who runs the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, welcome to Leading with Data. Thank you, Jason, for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, there may be people listening right now that have not heard of the Anti-Defamation League, or maybe they've heard of it as ADL. I'd love if you could just, you know, let us know a little bit about the organization and and how you got into your current role. Sure. The ADL is the oldest anti-hate organization in the world and one of the longest standing civil rights groups in the United States. It was founded in 1913, right around the time that a Jewish man was wrongly convicted of a crime and lynched from a tree outside of Atlanta, Georgia. In that moment, Jews faced the United States, what we would now call sort of systemic discrimination. They were barred from many professions, quotas kept them out of universities. They couldn't actively live where they wanted to because restrictive housing covenants prevented that. They couldn't get healthcare in lots of places. It went on and on. And in that moment, a group of Jews got together after this man was lynched and said, we actually need to stop this. And they, they sat down and they wrote a, a charter. I think in our parlance today, we call it a mission statement. And they wrote the words back then that we still use, you know, 107 years later. They wrote that the purpose of the ADL is to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. So so interesting about it, Jason, is they had this vision 100 plus years ago that America wouldn't be safe for its Jewish people unless it was also safe for all its people. Mm. And at a time when the Jews didn't have political capital or economic resources or social standing, that was an audacious, bold, almost an outrageous claim that they could fight, that they would be able to fight for others when they themselves didn't have a leg to stand on. But that dual mission, fighting anti-Semitism and all forms of hate, has guided the organization ever since. Today, ADL, basically we do four things. Number one, we do incident response. So whether there's an anti-Semitic incident anywhere in the United States, ADL is on it. We've been tracking anti-Semitic incidents for literally 40 years and doing sentiment analyses for more than 50 years to try to understand trends. Number two, we do advocacy. We try to change laws in the courts and in Congress in order to not just protect the Jewish people, but all minorities. So for example, ADL is the organization that got hate crimes laws kind of established in this country, you know, 30, 20 and 30 years ago at the state level and then worked its way up to creating a federal law. So we do a lot of advocacy. Number two, we do education. Long ago, they realized you can't just arrest or legislate your way to stop hate. Jason, you have to change hearts and minds. Today, the ADL is one of the largest providers in the country of anti-bias anti-hate content in schools, reach a million and a half school children every year. And then finally, we work with law enforcement, not just to track hate crimes as I already mentioned, we also help them investigate. We have a whole research unit that tracks extremists and we train. ADL is the largest trainer of law enforcement in America on issues of extremism and hate. We train 15,000 officers every year. 
Like we train every new FBI class in Quantico. We train the NYPD. We train big city, state, and federal agencies. And um, that's, that's critical. So we get the hate crimes law passed. We train the law enforcement how to deal with hate crimes. And then we educate children. So they are, you know, we condition the environment so hate doesn't happen. So that's kind of our theory of change. And we have 25 regional offices across the United States who actually do this work every day on the ground in schools, in city councils, in um, community centers, trying to fight hate. Well, and that's so important, uh, you know, especially in these times. I think uh, I would argue maybe it's never been more important than right now, particularly with all the misinformation, disinformation, other things that uh, mm -hmm. are playing out. Uh, so, so Jonathan, just just a quick short version. How did you get into this current role, and and what is that current role? Uh, and then we'll jump into the data questions. So, as I'm been, I'm the CEO of ADL. I've been in this job for about five and a half years, but it's a crazy story. I mean, I never expected to be here today. Um, I was recruited, it missed my first nonprofit job, you know, but I was recruited into the role. I had been serving as the head of the Office of Innovation at the White House for President Obama. President Obama wanted to bring innovation into the West Wing. And he wanted someone who'd actually to accelerate economic recovery and boost job creation. And he wanted someone who'd actually, you know, created economic return and jobs to run it. So at the time I was back out in California. I mean, I've spent most of my life starting and scaling companies. After business school at Kellogg, my first uh, company was a small uh, startup called Realtor.com that ended up getting very big and going public. And I had a great run there. And I ran consumer products, you know, at the end of the day through the IPO. And then I left that to start with my roommate from business school, a company called Ethos Water, a bottled water business that donated half of its profits to help children around the world get clean water. And then we grew, raised a bunch of money, grew it to a nice size, then we sold it to Starbucks. And I worked at Starbucks for some time, running the bottled water business and serving on the board of the Starbucks Foundation. And then I came back to LA and got recruited to run a media company and took a small, unprofitable, social responsible media business and scaled that up to a profitable enterprise. And then we spun out a venture from that that Google invested in. And so I incubated a business at Google called All for Good that again, grew and it basically all for good did for real, did for volunteer listings, what Realtor had done for real estate listings. Mm. Um, and that was, whereas Realtor was a web 1.0 company, this was a web 2.0 company. And we can talk about that if you want. And then after that got acquired, I was at a private equity firm and I went to the White House. So it's a long way of saying most of my life's been in business, a little bit of time in government service, never anything like this before, but I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor anti-Semitism has helped shape my life. And when this old institution wanted a new CEO to help modernize it and transform it, I thought I would do it for a couple of years. It'd be exciting and give it a whirl. And then, you know, when I started on the job at ADL, the same week that Donald Trump announced his candidacy and sort of the wheels kind of came off. So it's been quite a roller coaster ride for the last five years. Wow. Well, thank you for that context. You know, we have a variety of listeners from executives to uh, those professionals in venture, private equity, and so forth. And it's always great to get that kind of context. You know, as our listeners know, I've uh, run uh, lots of private companies and serve on boards of both public and private companies and have been through some that have been wildly successful and some that have totally failed. So yeah. to hear a track record like yours is uh, is really inspiring. So thank you for sharing that. Well, I'll, so I'll just share. I've been more effective as an executive much less effective as an investor. So uh, I've done my share of angel investing and learned the hard way that it's a little bit like, unless you do it for a living, it's a little bit like gambling. 
So. Yeah, very true. Uh, very true. Uh, yeah, I work with a venture capital firm as a venture partner and uh, being in all the deal meetings, it it certainly tells you the, the value of uh, information and having a team around you versus trying to do it uh, one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. here's the question. The first one, what is the most, this is a fun one. What is the most important decision you've made using data and how did it work out? The most important decision in my life, basically. Yeah, or or you know, at ADL or at one of the other companies, doesn't have well, to I be mean, sort of current. I think at ADL, one of the things that makes us interesting. I mean, we're a five hundred one c three, you know, nonprofit organization, so we can't be political or partisan. We're operating in an age of polarization when there's an incredible amount of division, and people want you to kind of choose a side, pick a team. But my view is actually, if you think about it, ADL's job is not to pick a team; it's to be like the ump on the field, call balls and strikes. You know, when I was in high school, I was a little league umpire for many years to make money. And I remember what it's like. You call them balls and strikes. The home team hates you. The away team hates you. But, you know, that's really what you got to do. And I think the way that I, when I came at this job in 2015, I realized one of our greatest assets at ADL was our data. Not just like, you know, uh, the, the significance of our voice or our legacy, but it's the data that makes those things possible. Mm-hmm. Again, having done attitudinal surveys for 50 plus years, about attitudes, about tolerance in the United States. Having collected data about, you know, hate crimes is one of the things we look at. The ADL has better intelligence and information about anti-Semitic incidents than not just any other nonprofit in the United States, Jason, any other government agency, because we've been doing it for 40 years. So I try very hard to take an evidence-based approach with the policies we develop and to ground our opinions, to ground our statements in data. So we're using data on a daily basis. And if you look at many other nonprofits, many other advocacy groups, they take opinions and they often, you know, get caught up in the politics of the day. We try very hard to stick with the data because I think ultimately that is, you know, if there's some empiricism to what we do, it, it, it diminishes the, the polarization and we all end up in a better place. Yeah, I love it. I feel like you must listen to every show because that's certainly my <laughs> mantra here is, you know, we want to separate myth from truth through data. We're not trying to pick sides. We're just trying to bring accuracy and truth forward. And, and then we can make decisions. So mm-hmm. what, a, what a great perspective. All right. So this will be fun then. What is an unexpected opinion you have about data or the future of data? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think one of the challenges we have is you know, we could find ourselves, you know, the old adage of the tyranny of choice, right? Like when you walk to a supermarket and there's an infinite number of things and you don't know the cereal boxes, you don't know which one to choose. Well, today we have so much data. It's almost like a tyranny of data. How do you kind of improve the signal to noise ratio? So in an environment where everything is recorded, right? Every, not just every click and every keystroke, but every sound we make by the, you know, the devices in our homes, right? every time we're, you know, using public transportation or any public service, everything has become monitored and unfortunately monetized. I think it leads us to think about, okay, how do we actually, again, improve the signal to noise ratio? And I think part of value creation in the 21st century are those organizations that are actually able to do that effectively, mm-hmm. right? To help, help us discern what really matters and find the significance among all of the information that's out there. The ability to do that kind of pattern recognition becomes even more difficult in an environment where, again, data is so ubiquitous and overwhelming, but I think it's critical to success. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's definitely a conversation I've had with the molecular team many times, and particularly when you look at like ML and AI and and what's exactly. really driving you know insights and innovation. So absolutely. All right, this will be a, a sort of a different one because it's not so much about data, but just really your perspective given you know the tremendous career you've had. What do you think is most important when it comes to being an effective leader today? Well, I'll give you two thoughts on that. I mean, I start every meeting. Look, I've been blessed to have some success in the business world, you know, in tech, in CPG, in retail, in media. I've done different categories or different industries. Uh, but I don't think my I was successful because I had the best water or because I had the best package or because I had the best editorial content or the best algorithms. I think I was successful in these ventures to the extent that I was um, because of two interrelated things, people and culture. Mm -hmm. Could I recruit and retain best of class talent to my organization? And could I create an environment in which that talent could kind of innovate and really flourish? And mm -hmm. so it's interesting at ADL today, I mean, every, literally every weekly senior staff meeting, every quarterly all hands meeting, every board of directors meeting, I always start with people and culture. You know, not what's the fancy program, not how much money did we raise, not what's in the news, but people and culture to keep that focus. So I think number one, I would say for a leader today in an environment, again, where everything is teched out and there's, you know, data on demand and we have all these interesting innovations, it comes back to the basics of people and culture. I think that's super important. Um, and so that to me is for any leader in any environment, whether you're in government or you're in business or you're a nonprofit, understanding the interrelationship of people and culture to kind of the success of your enterprise, I think is pretty fundamental. Gotcha. And so going a little bit deeper on that then, is there one thing that you do or that you've done uh, throughout these different enterprises and organizations, or maybe you're doing now that you find really helps you with people and culture? Could be an action, could be a tradition, just a, an approach or something that you take that you find really helps to create the, the culture or bring in and engage the people the way that uh, you just described? Um, I guess I try to walk humbly. Like I know that I don't have the answers and I believe in servant leadership. I really learned this from Howard Schultz. Like I try very hard, you know, to walk humbly and to listen to the people around me and to realize that particularly I think in the 21st century where everything has been so flattened, right? Where hierarchies have been smashed, where again, everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket. Um, it has really, it, it has forced us to think radically differently about again, where talent is and where ideas come from and what leadership looks like. So, you know, what's interesting, Jason, um, I, I don't know if I always get it right, but I'll give you an example of how I try to center myself I, get, I try to center other people rather than myself. So the headquarters at ADL, when I got here five years ago, it was called ADL, again, 25 field offices. It was called national. They called it national. The headquarters was national. It was the national office. So the regional offices were actually where kids get educated, where police get trained, where laws get you know, passed, where incidents happen. That's where all the work happens. Their view in, out in those field offices was, well, what does national say? What is national telling us to do? And when I came in, one of the first things that I did was I changed the name. I mean, what I did at ADL was cultural transformation, cultural transformation. And I changed the name of our headquarters from, AD, from national, which I hate that term, 
It's now called the CSC or the Community Support Center. Because I believe at ADL, our business is supporting our community, the Jewish community, other minority communities, these regional communities that we serve. And I wanted to reorder the way they thought about it. So instead of the region saying, right? Like what does national say? Actually, it's like the regions, it's us saying, how can we support the communities? And I tell my staff all the time, these regional directors who run these offices, Jason, like I work for you. So the question isn't what I'm telling you to do. The question is, how can I serve you? What do you need from me? And I think this, again, I try to walk humbly and I believe in servant leadership. And I think that approach has allowed me to create a positive, it's contributed to a consistently positive culture in the places I've worked. Look, I'm very intense. I work my team very hard, but I try you know, with intention not to center myself in the work. And I think that has paid off. I guess the other thing I would just say is I, I deeply believe, and it's a bit trite now, it's a little bit glib and overused, but I deeply believe in like the principle of innovation, mm-hmm. which I think is simply put like finding new ways to solve old problems. And so I really frequently push my people like really hard. One of the things that I heard a lot when I got to ADL was, I said, why do we do it this way? And they would say, because that's how we've always done it. Like no one's allowed to say that to me. You're not allowed to use that expression. Like that isn't a logic base, right? That isn't kind of a a, a reasoned approach. Like Mm -hmm. I want my team to always be innovating, always be pushing, never be satisfied. And to think outside the box, like it didn't make sense, you know, back in the mid nineties that you'd want to search for real estate that wasn't in your, you know, delimited geographic area, but then was real.com. It didn't make sense. You'd create a business, a bottled water business that would give away half of its profits. And it didn't make sense. I could go on and on with the things I've tried to pioneer. So I, I think in addition to this kind of servant leadership ethos that I've tried to employ, it's also pushing my people not to take anything for granted, to ask more. I mean, I, I use an expression at the office, try more stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be successful, but I think the, the habit of trying more stuff will help you push, push and find new ways again, to solve all problems. I love that. So we'll, we'll use that as your sort of leadership saying, uh, which is going to be my next question. So let me ask one last one. This will be our last one here. Uh, what, I mean, you just described so many things that I would love to spend an hour unpacking, particularly around innovation, because I do think that's something that that is so important right now, uh, where there's a, a hot debate between what is acceleration versus mm-hmm. actual innovation, given mm-hmm. uh, you know the forcing function of the pandemic. Let me ask you this one, though. What is one prediction? Let's be our last one. What is one prediction you have about the future of data and business? One prediction about the future of data and business. Well, I think one of the things we have to realize that, and this probably isn't new to you or your listeners, but data is a precious resource. So again, even in an environment where it's ubiquitous, where again, every, every, every click is counted and every move is monitored. And so it seems infinite. The reality is, I think success is very much derived from how you can make sense of the data, how you can do the pattern recognition, and pull it together. So I think what you're going to see in the years ahead, whether it's you know with your wearables or with your other devices and whatnot, is value comes from the, the organizations, companies who are able to stream the data together in novel, in novel ways, again, to create more value. So that could be you know the company that Again, just looking at my health stuff here, my, my um, 
like monitoring my health on my wrist because it's got an interesting novel application on my uh, Apple Watch. And then it's combining with information from my smart refrigerator about the food intake that I have to offer customized recommendations about how to be optimizing my diet. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that kind of, again, novel applications that stream together data in interesting and kind of maybe, um, you know, just again, the word would be novel or unpredictable ways, I think will be very exciting. Love that. So, so Jonathan, if people want to follow you or follow the ADL online, is there any places you recommend they go or social media? What, where would you send well, them? I'm now starting to play with Clubhouse, which is pretty cool, but I think we're easier found at Twitter. I'm Jay Greenblatt, ADL. You know, ADL is just ADL on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook and Insta and lots of other places. Awesome. Well, thank you for the wealth of information perspective. This was definitely a very fun show. I know I learned a ton. And I want to thank again, Molecula for making this possible. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much for joining us today. And please look out for the next show. We've got a great one dropping soon. This is Jason Dorsey. Thank you so much for your time today. And Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much for the wisdom, insights, and always the perspective that we value. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the Leading with Data podcast. I'm your host, Jason Dorsey, and it was so much fun to get to bring this podcast to you. Big thanks to our sponsor, Molecula, for making this possible. For those of you who'd love to learn more about Molecula, definitely worth checking them out. You can visit Molecula.com, and I look forward to you joining us on the next podcast.